Good morning. Let's read Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Let's pray. Spirit of Christ, we ask that you would speak to us through your word this morning. We need it. We need to hear, um, we need to hear what you want to teach us from Malachi chapter 2 today. In Christ's name, amen. So we'll talk first, kind of a a little bit of a broader brushstroke about Malachi in general because it really fits with this particular passage. What's going on in Malachi? Malachi is a story of God's reaction to broken promises. The relationship between God and his people, Judah in this case, was built entirely on a chain of promises, some of them made over centuries. God had promised to do certain things, And Judah had promised to do certain things. That was the basis of the relationship. Only this. Only Judah didn't keep her promises. And the book of Malachi is one of the books where God is reacting to Judah's broken promises. We're talking about, we're not just talking about, oops, they accidentally did something once. We're talking about centuries of unfaithfulness. Near complete unfaithfulness is the kind of level of violation we're talking about here. All along, through prophets, through, through kings, through all of the events of their history, all throughout the way, God has been warning Judah, and he's intervened to teach her and to save her, but Judah is still refusing to do what God has promised. And so now, through the prophet Malachi, God is giving one final warning. It's the last word. And it's a strong warning. He speaks to Judah very harshly. If they don't change their course after this final warning, it's over. That's the sort of purpose of the book. And it just raises the question, is God's reaction appropriate? Is he overreacting? Maybe it strikes you as sort of over the top. You know, sort of like all that over some broken promises. You know, because it's really stern language in this book. I mean, you just heard just a portion of it in that passage from chapter 2 that we just read. Well, the answer is no. God is not overreacting. He's reacting exactly as he should react. And let me give you two examples, just kind of two stories, hypothetical stories, that I think will illustrate why God is not overreacting, why his reaction is is very appropriate in this circumstance. Okay, here's story number one. It's the story of the king. 
imagine that you are the leader of a nation. You've just become the leader of a nation. And your term of office began with an oath to uphold the laws, and the people vowed to support and honor you. But soon after, a rebel faction formed and threatened to destroy the peace and the safety of the nation. Maybe at first you respond with patience, trying to talk with them, trying to coax them into laying down their arms and reunifying the nation, but they don't give in. You try everything to prevent a destructive civil war, but finally you realize they mean it. There's no avoiding it. These people intend to kill you and destroy this nation. Now, what should you do? What should you do? Your vow was to preserve the laws of the land. You're, you're, you are the person who is most responsible for the peace and safety of that country. As tragic a situation as it is, you cannot allow treason to continue. You have to end the rebellion for the sake of your nation, for its safety, for its security. There's no choice. That's story number one. Story number two. Imagine you got married. And the marriage began with an exchange of vows, a covenant commitment to remain faithful to one another as long as you both shall live. But soon, pretty soon after the, very soon after the wedding, you discover that your spouse has not been faithful. Maybe at first you try to be patient, understanding, forgiving. After all, I know what it's, you know, living with me is not easy, right? Um, but instead of responding with repentance and gratitude, your spouse cheats again. And in fact, it seems like the more grace you give, the more your spouse feels free to ignore your wedding vows. What should you do? You can't respond with patient forbearance forever. In fact, you shouldn't. Eventually, it becomes necessary for both your sake and your spouse's to say, enough. Either your unfaithfulness ends or our marriage does. I mean, in any of us who put ourselves in those situations, wouldn't you feel angry? Wouldn't you feel upset? I mean, if you don't, there's something wrong with you in both of those situations. You, you know, our reaction should be, this may not happen. It may not continue. That's what God is doing in Malachi. He's saying to Israel, to Judah, and he's saying, this may not continue. In this, in this book, God is the king with the rebellious people, the groom with the unfaithful bride. And his harshness is appropriate because his people need to hear it. They are careening toward destruction. And God is warning them one last time, shaking them violently and saying, snap out of it, change course, you are going to die if you continue. So that's the, that's the, broader, that's the broader picture of the book of Malachi. And this passage fits into that. In our passage today, we notice a little bit of a shift. If you were here the last few Sundays, you know that the focus of the first chapter and the first part of the second chapter is on the, the promises broken in relation to God. And it focuses particularly on the priests of the people, because uh, priests of Judah, because they're supposed to be the leaders of the people. They're supposed to be the ones who are helping to nurture the spiritual health of the country. They've forsaken that. So in the beginning of of the book, God focuses in on them. But now, here in chapter 2, in our passage today, there's a bit of a change of focus. Uh, He's introducing broken promises to each other. Look at verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Has not God, one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another? Profaning the covenant of our fathers. So the focus shifts to the broken promises with one another. 
And um, the, the, shift, the focus shifts from the priests mainly now to the whole people. Okay? So that's what's happening in the book up to this point. And you notice that our passage for today, there are two paragraphs, and it even says so it's sort of like first and second. And so this is like a two-point indictment of the people of God. He's saying, here's two things that you've done that are faithless, promise-breaking things. Okay? And so uh, we'll look at the two kind of in sequence. The first one, uh, I could call, we could call it this. Judah has loved the wrong things. Do you see that? Look at verses uh, 11 and 12. Judah has been faithless and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord. That's sort of from the previous section. He describes that in more detail. Which he loves. And he has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off the tent, tents for, of Jacob from, any de- from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this. So he's, they've loved the wrong things. They've married the wrong people. They've married ungodly people, and God strongly condemns them for it. And in our culture, I suspect maybe this seems like overkill, right? Um, why is it such a big deal? Marriage is about what? Falling in love. You know, you find that special person, you fall in love, and you marry them. That's what marriage is about. And apart from the example we receive from our parents, we mostly get our ideas of love and marriage and relationships from pop culture. We get it from movies, songs, our peers, that kind of thing. So our understanding of love and marriage can often sound like the lyrics of this classic song. Love and marriage, love and marriage. They go together like a horse and carriage. Um, I tell you, brother, you can't have one without the other. Try, try, try to separate them. It's an illusion. Try, 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 and you will only come to this conclusion. Love and marriage, love and marriage, they go together like a horse and carriage. In the immortal words of Frank Sinatra. <laughs> Who should know some things about getting married, by the way. Um, in the, so in the 21st, in 21st, or in that case, 20th century America... Nothing is more foundational to marriage in our, in our minds. Nothing is more foundational to marriage than love. And so we struggle with this passage. Why would God penalize the people of Judah because they fell in love with someone, the wrong person? But I think that's the problem, is, is that without really knowing it, we've accepted a particular view of marriage that is unique to our time. We can't imagine marriage in, in, in any other way. But there's a view of marriage that predates ours. And it goes like this. The most important parts of marriage are the act of, number one, the act of creating a new identity. There's there's new people, new life, new home, new family that's established. And then secondly, the formation of unique community connections with another person and their network of family and their friends. And marriage unites networks of people and, and brings community together. That's a, a much older concept of marriage that predates ours. Today, we tend to think of our identities and our relationships as purely self-declared. I and only I get to decide who I am. Only I get to decide what I'm all about and what I value and who I'm friends with, and, and we could just kind of go on down the list. I and only I get to decide everything for me. That's the shape of our sort of modern mind. But a more historic and realistic and frankly biblical view is that connection and identity 
are not mainly something that we create. They're mainly something that we receive. We come into the world with existing connections and existing identities. We didn't choose our family and our family's friends when we were babies. We didn't choose our names. We didn't choose where we lived, what we ate, where we went to school. We didn't choose what we look like, what ethnicity we we are, where we were born, what accent we have. You don't choose that when you're young. Every person is born into those things. And those identities and those relationships aren't always ideal, but they are real. And to a huge degree, they define us. But we don't like that. We don't want to be defined by anything. Today, it's a widely accepted fact that nothing outside us can define us. I can only do that for myself. The problem is that idea is not only false, wishful thinking, it's also dangerous. We can't have pure self-definition without pulling ourselves up by the roots and shaking off the things that have defined us to this point. We can't have it without pulling ourselves up from the roots. And an uprooted plant will do what? It will wither, and it will eventually die. And so if we cut off our identity and our connections that we've received, so will we. We will wither. So what begins as a quest for personal invention and reinvention and reinvention ends up as chasing the wind. We can't make ourselves into whatever we want because what we want is always changing. And even when we get what we want, we immediately want something else. This whole thing is a trap and it will leave us at the end. The the, the irony is, you know, it, it's, a, it's a quest for identity. I'm going to gain an identity out of this. At the end of it, we, we, end, we end up with less identity and less con- fewer connections than when we started. It doesn't build us up. It tears us down. And that brings us to the second paragraph. Let's read that. Verses 13 to 16. This second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. And you say, why doesn't he? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in the spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. So this is, so they've, Judah has gone and married, they've loved the wrong thing. And then here's, it's kind of ironic that the foreign wives that Judah loved so much that they just had to marry even though God explicitly told them not to, they end up abandoning them and divorcing them for someone better. I just have to have her. Oh, well, now I don't. Now I have to have her, you see. It's a moving target. And this is, here's God's second pronouncement of guilt. The first one was Judah is loving the wrong things. The second thing is even, when, even what Judah has loved, they have been unfaithful to it. Even what they have loved, they've been unfaithful. 
So it turns out forbidden love didn't satisfy their personal quests for relationship and identity. And that's typical of us as human beings. Our hearts wander from one thing to another, not just over a lifetime, but in a given day even. One of the most illuminating questions you can ever ask yourself is this very simple question. Ask yourself this. What do I want? Not what should I want, but what do I want right now? That is a very very illuminating question. In this moment, right now, what do I want? And then, you know, if you can, if you want to keep going uh, with, the, with the line of questioning, why do I want that? And if I magically had it right now, if I could wave my magic wand, how long would that make me happy, really? I mean, if you really honestly answer those questions, you will learn a lot about your own heart. I suspect that we are often very dishonest about questions like these. We deceive ourselves about what we really want and why. We exaggerate the satisfaction we, receive, we, we hope to receive if only we can get our hands on what we want. Two biblical examples of this come to mind, both of them very similar in most ways, <clears throat> but yet with some key differences. Who, who was it that betrayed Jesus? Well, it was Judas, of course, right? But who else betrayed Jesus? Well, very distinctly in the Gospels, you have Judas and Peter, both betraying Jesus on the same night. In the 24 hours before Jesus' death, we, we discover two people that were not at all aware of the state of their own hearts. Take Judas. I'm convinced that he was not some kind of frothing-at-the-mouth frothing cartoon villain who was sitting there doing this with his hands and saying, Mwahaha, as he was counting his 30 pieces of silver. You know. My guess is that he, he thought he was doing the right thing. He thought he was doing the right thing in selling out Jesus. At least that's what he told himself. That's what he persuaded himself. Maybe he thought something like, it's time to put an end to this nonsense and start again. Maybe he thought that, uh, maybe he'd given, Jesus is, you know, he's just not the right guy, you know. Maybe he thought Jesus, if he kind of provokes this confrontation with the authorities, that Jesus would finally fight back and start a war against the Romans. Maybe Judas had given up on Jesus and he wanted a new leader, like a strong man, like Barabbas. We don't know exactly. We only know that Judas was motivated by an evil within. But I wonder if he even realized it. I wonder how many of us are as unclear about our motivations as Judas was. But then there's Peter, the opposite of Judas in many ways, and yet he had, I think he had the same fundamental problem. I think he meant it when he said that he would never deny Jesus and that he would rather die for him instead. And when he drew his sword in the Garden of Gethsemane, I don't think he had any idea what betrayal lurked in the, in the bottom of his heart. Or maybe he did. Even if he, even if he was aware, maybe the bravado was an attempt to silence his own fears. But either way, what Peter said and what Peter actually did were two very different things. And I wonder how many of us are as deceived about our own hearts as Judas and Peter were. Well, regardless of what we know about our own hearts, the truth is we flit back and forth and chasing what we love and trying to create identities and connections for ourselves. But all of that, the whole thing, is a destructive, a destructive trap. Because our souls are like stickers. 
Kids, do you like stickers? Do you play with stickers? Do you have a favorite kind? I find a lot of Dora stickers around my house. And uh, Hello Kitty stickers. I made the mistake of buying my daughters like a, a book of 300 stickers. And now they're everywhere. I think I found them on the car and everything. So when you put a sticker on something, kids, can you, when you put a sticker on something, can you pull it off again? You can, sometimes. Sometimes. But what happens when you put a sticker on something and then you take it off, and then you put it on, and then you take it off, and you put it on, and you take it off? What happens? It loses its stickiness. And you know what? If you, if you lose your stickiness enough, guess what? You're not really much of a sticker anymore, you know? Did you know that our souls are like stickers? When we attach ourselves to something, and then another thing, and then another thing, and then another thing, we lose our stickiness. Spiritually, we wither. We leave, a little, we leave behind a little bit of ourselves here, and a little bit there, and a little bit there. And then one day we realize how little we have left. One day we wake up and realize... There's not much of me left spiritually. It's a dangerous game we're playing. And unless we eventually find something that we can stick to permanently, we'll eventually end up with nothing left at all. And that is exactly why in the book of Malachi and elsewhere, God is so upset with Judah. By marrying people who are against God, they're attaching them to something attaching themselves to something that is false and warped and deceitful and then to make matters worse they don't just attach themselves to something terrible they do it over and over and over again and the consequences of all that are unavoidable if we pursue things that can never satisfy over and over again what effect do you think that has on our souls how healthy do you think that makes us And if we break our commitments and our relationships with each other over and over and over again, what effect do you think that will have on our souls? There's no spiritual health in it. Like Judah, we often turn our backs on the one true source of life, God himself. Let's just call it what it is. It's spiritual suicide. That's what we do. And when God spoke through prophets like Malachi, he was saving Judah from themselves. He was saving them. The harsh words are words of salvation. He's saving them from themselves. He's waking them up because they need it. And maybe that's exactly what God is doing with you today. Are you feeling stretched and challenged in your life right now? Could it be that God is making you more aware of your own heart? I mean, truly go home today and ask yourself, what deadly idols is God saving you from right now? We'll finish with this. Have you broken your vows like Judah did? Have you loved the wrong things? And even the things you've loved, have you you been unfaithful to them? Of course you have. Everyone does that. There are no exceptions to that. Every last one of us has done all of those things. So what should you do about it? 
Well, think about this. If God's goal was to destroy Judah, would he have sent a prophet? No. If his goal was to destroy them, he would have just done it. I mean, just, we're done now. Boom, it's over. But instead, God chooses to speak through Malachi, not to condemn his people, but to warn and convict them to save them from spiritual destruction and bring them back to himself. What does that tell you about God? The same God who spoke to Judah in in 400 BC through the prophet Malachi speaks to you today. And even when the message is hard to hear, he is speaking to save us from ourselves and to remind us of the identity and the community that he has made for us, that we receive from him, that we don't create for ourselves, that we receive from him. So guess what? You're free. If you're in Christ, you're free. You don't have to search anymore. You don't have to create anymore. Not, not, for, not, not for your own spiritual life. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and he will give you exactly what you are searching for. Amen.